You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I'm doing well. I did the thing this morning where I uh, took my daughter to her summer camp. Okay. To drop her off and realize that there is no summer camp this week. You know what? I got a similar situation. My daughter's preschool closes down this week for curriculum planning, uh, to which I responded, you're a preschool. The curriculum is playing in the sandbox. Um, I didn't actually say that because they're actually really nice people. But yeah, I, I, I answered this problem, Chad. I don't know about you. I took some vacation time this week because damn it. If we're all just going to be sitting around the house, let's do something with it. Wow. So you, you really, uh, you really reacted strongly to that. Well, I got to embrace it, especially when I real, I look at the UFC calendar and I realize basically from now until the end of the year, it's not like there's a good time to take a vacation. No, there is not. It's going to be pretty much chock full till the end of the year. Uh, my wife is also on a business trip out of town today. So, uh, we utilized, uh, family in town. Took our, took our children over to the family, dropped them off. Then they texted me later and they were like, Hey, do you want me to feed the kids dinner tonight? <laughs> I texted back to say, yes, yes, I do. Are you again going to try to pass this off as if this is some, the result of brilliant planning on your part? I mean, better planning than what you've got. Certainly you well, could have moved somewhere else. I still might you after could. this conversation. As soon as this conversation ends, I'm, I very well may pick up and move. We got music again this week from the new friend of the podcast, The Fifth Element, a music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. Thanks to him for that. And if you like what you hear, you can check him out at facebook.com slash The Fifth Element on Twitter at The Fifth Element or soundcloud.com slash The Fifth Element Official. Again, that's the word the with an A instead of an E and the number five in Fifth Element. What do you think's going on with the unofficial Fifth Element? He actually told me the story uh, that... He locked down all of the Fifth Element social medias early on, and then for some reason, uh, he discontinued his SoundCloud and like was working on a different account. And then when he tried to go back, somebody else had already nabbed slash the fifth the Fifth Element, so he had to go with the Fifth Element official. Well, I bet that other person with just the regular Fifth Element feels like an idiot now. It's unofficial, if anything. Yeah, there's nothing official about it. So yeah, check out the music this week. I think that it's a, an upgrade from the the stuff we were using in the past. The Fifth Element is going to be hanging out with us on the ones and twos for the near for the foreseeable future. For you a you while just here. you wanted any opportunity to say the ones and twos. I've didn't been you? waiting 219 episodes to say <laughs> we've got somebody on the ones does and twos. It, does it feel like you thought it would? It feels pretty good. Okay, we got three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one. To paraphrase his immediate predecessor as the UFC's biggest male star, yes, Conor McGregor, we can see you now. And in round number two, buy now for the low, low price of $2.09 per session and let life coach Nathan Diaz teach you over a series of guided meditations and thought-provoking seminars how to take your life to a better place. 
And in round number three, if you notice Ben Folk sounded a little lightheaded, it's because we'll be discussing Damian Maya's upcoming fight against Carlos Condit. And you know when we do that, all the blood rushes out of his brain to another place in his body. I get the vapors just thinking about it. All that plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me? But first, like we always do about this time. Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Ivan Burden. He writes, So the T-8000, known as Rumble Johnson, laid claim to another victim in Glover Tashira. He charged up his fist like Ryu from Street Fighter and knocked Tashira into his next fight versus the Dan Mergliata. With Rumble only fighting for 13 seconds, are we going to see DC versus Rumble at MSG? Discourse! With three exclamation points. I guess the short answer is, yeah, probably. I uh, mean, you can't blame Rumble or uh, Glover Tashira for trying to fight Dan Mergliotta after, after this thing was over because, well, first of all, he got knocked into the Black Land, the, the land of wind and ghosts. The Dark Lands, And yeah. second of all, like, how do you expect the fight to be over in 13 seconds? No. Right? I That's was, not something you're planning on. It was one of those things where I was just still settling in on my couch, getting my laptop open, getting, getting ready to watch it. I heard, ooh, I look up, and it's basically over. Had had to catch the replay to see how it happened. But it, doesn't this also feel like that kind of instance where, even though I expected Anthony Johnson to knock out Glover Teixeira, I did not expect it to happen that fast. And so it does also not feel like we really learned anything super new about Anthony Johnson. He can still hit you one time and ruin your whole goddamn night. But we knew that already. Yeah, we And learned, it wasn't enough against Daniel Cormier the first time. We learned the exact thing about Rumble Johnson that we've always known. Don't don't be hit by him yep. during the first 13 seconds of your fight with him. See, you should have been in Glover's corner. Now, as I was going to ask you, doesn't this seem like a weird, like, I mean, you hate to you hate to overanalyze 13 damn seconds, right? But, like, this seems like kind of a weird strategy from Glover to Shira, to, at least to me, and especially in retrospect, when he ends up wrestling with the referee. But, like, we all know what the book is on Anthony Johnson. You go out there, you try to wear the guy out, you get him into the into the deep waters. As they say, you try to to sap him of some of that enormous power that he has. You you wait for his cardio to fail him, and then uh, you do the thing that you would think Glover Deshire would have the advantage of in this fight, and you do some wrestling of your own down the stretch. Maybe you salt away a twenty nine twenty eight unanimous decision victory. Glover Deshire comes out, and granted, Glover Deshire also hits pretty damn hard. So I understand if there is a. Uh, male bull elk locking horns situation going on ego wise here, but he still comes out pretty aggressive yeah. right at the beginning of this fight. Pressures him right off the bat. Throwing his slow ass punches comparatively at Rumble Johnson's face and uh, gets, gets the uppercut, catches a hot one right up the middle. Well, kind of a weird thing for him to do. Don't you think? Again, I, I know you started off this analysis by saying you didn't want to overanalyze 13 damn seconds, but I feel like it's kind of inevitable that if you start to analyze it too much at all, it is going to be overanalysis. Because so you just want to be done with it? Well, he saying, got knocked out and we're done with it. His we don't know what the broader game plan was. I mean, you come out there right away and trying to pressure him and crowd him a little bit and get in his face. You know, maybe the hope there was. Let's get him moving backwards. Let's get him moving toward the fence, and then let's work a clinch game to take down from there. And I, you know, if you had told me beforehand, like that's what we want to do is we want to get Anthony Johnson's back up against the fence. We want to get in the clinch where he's not as dangerous, and then we want to either try to wear him down there or get him to the ground from there. Um, but basically, fight him and at that range. 
I would not be able to tell you I think that's a bad idea. Of course, I, you know, I might mention, see if you can try not to get hit really hard on the way in or like at any time before you can enact this game plan. And then that's just what happened. I mean, that it's, it's hard to, to tell too much about what Glover Teixeira's overall plan was because he got hit in the face really damn hard and then the plan became try to finish that single leg on Big Dan Mercuriata. We can say, I think, without much hesitation, that the, fir- the first 13 seconds of the plan left a lot to be desired. Okay. <laughs> After that, maybe he was about to get super awesome. Yeah. Maybe this was Maybe a, he was just about to win until yeah, he lost. Had I not been knocked out, I was just about to win with my super <laughs> awesome game plan. I don't know. Maybe it was. But then you have that moment afterwards, right, where Anthony Johnson is in his like extremely nice call out of Daniel Cormier uh, and talking about how he's trying to get that title. And I feel like, all right, I'll watch this one again. And I will expect it to be basically the exact same fight because we saw what happened before he, he hit Daniel Cormier really hard the way he does. It almost knocked Daniel Cormier out. But then when it didn't, then Cormier set about to embracing the grind and uh, just wore Anthony Johnson down and broke him. Seem to break him mentally. Right. And this is where we come around once again, just as we did last week, to the glaring deficiency of the UFC light heavyweight division, because there really ain't nothing to do besides have Rumble Johnson issue an extremely polite call out of Daniel Cormier. And there really isn't anything to do for Daniel Cormier besides fight the winner of Rumble Johnson, Glover Deshira. And we're going to get that fight. Maybe we get it at Madison Square Garden, as Ivan Burden suggested. And the only thing that we will be watching for in that fight is whether or not Rumble Johnson can knock out Daniel Cormier with that punch or one of those punches during the first round. And we're left to assume if that doesn't happen, Daniel Cormier, as you said, embraces the grind uh, and and probably wrestles his way to a to a late stoppage or a unanimous decision. I mean, the biggest surprise would be if that does not happen to Rumble Johnson, right? The biggest surprise would be if if Anthony Johnson shows up ready to go 25 minutes against DC without slowing down. Nope. That's not going to happen. So big of a surprise, we're not even going to include it on the list of possibilities. Nope. So, so there you go. Like, it seems like a fight where you would want to watch the first five minutes, maybe. Well, no, I mean... You want to watch the whole thing, but you're going to find out everything you need to know in that first five minutes, I think. Also, did you notice Daniel Cormier when he, you know, we, we camera pans to him cage side listening to Anthony Johnson's call out and he's wearing a polo shirt with the, the very top button buttoned again, somehow again, looking like a Pop Warner football coach getting ready to coach the big game just in a different way. You pointed that out last time when he comes out in his whole warm up suit. Man, he, he just has a knack for that, doesn't he? I think that's Daniel Cormier's look. Like, I don't think there's another look that he can go to. I well, think... they throw him in a suit when they put him behind the Fox Sports desk. Oh, that's desk, true. Yeah. And that's basically the only time that he does not appear to be one of the worst-dressed men in MMA. Uh, no, hey, well, I'm going to take issue with that. I find Daniel Cormier's overall look to be enchanting, inspiring. <laughs> enchanting. I mean, huh? Daniel Cormier is one of the few dudes who can make T-shirt tucked into shorts and socks pulled up to the middle of his calves look good. No, he does not make that. No one makes that look good. I feel he I feel he makes it look as good as possible. I feel he makes it. I mean, I'll agree with you there. He makes it look as good as possible. And it really shows the, the, the deficiency of the style itself. Compared to random guy you might see at the grocery store with his T-shirt tucked into his warm up pants. Uh, Daniel Cormier, Cormier is not doing too bad. I just feel like, you know. You could get that guy a trunk club membership or something and change his whole life. 
Uh, next question this week comes from Jonathan Ganru. Ganyu. Jonathan Ganyu. In a sport with a lot of head-scratching post-fight call-outs was Donald Cerrone's call for the lightweight belt one of the more inscrutable ones. He could have read the room better and said something like, How'd y'all like to see a cowboy kick the ass of some wonder boy? No, not bad. Or call Tyron Woodley a pussy or something, but going back to the lightweight, going back to lightweight seems counterintuitive at best. Uh, I kind of saw this. I, I, I agree that it did seem a little bit surprising. And it also seemed surprising the, with the like passiveness with which he did it. Cause usually somebody is just like demanding a title shot. God damn it. They've earned it. You better give it to them or all hell's going to break loose. And this one was more like, I don't know. It might be cool. Eddie Alvarez might have something that belongs to me. Maybe. Anybody, well, that, any, that just seems like to, uh, in the, in the style of the cowboy. Sure. In keeping with the cowboys other post white call outs. Right. He, he knows a guy. Well, yeah. Well, and so when I thought about it afterwards, it occurred to me that is he just thinking style matchup wise that, cause you, you say those words out loud, you know, Eddie Alvarez versus Donald Cerrone. And it sounds like there's no way for that to be a boring fight. Yeah, I mean, and Donald Cerrone has already beaten Eddie Alvarez uh, back in, in two th- 2014. That was the one where Eddie, we all thought, said immediately Eddie Alvarez was undersized for the division. No way he'd ever do much at lightweight in the UFC, as I recall. Turned out he was just fighting a dude who was about to go out there and go 3-0 and at welterweight. Yeah. Uh, so that could have had something to do with the size discrepancy in that fight. Uh, I don't want to take too much away from Donald Cerrone, although I would agree that that was kind of a weird call out, especially since it, uh, it seemed like they're, they, they're probably going to hold that lightweight title shot for someone else that we might talk about later in the show. Uh, and to go from winning three fights in a row welterweight to say you want to go back to lightweight. Yeah. That's, that's kind of a weird move, especially since Donald Cerrone's last three welterweight wins are arguably among his his most impressive. And well, he has looked super good in his last two against Patrick Kotig and Rick Story. And if you have seen the the slow motion gif of the three punch and one kick combo that he uses to knock out Rick Rich or Rick Story Rich I don't Rich Story must be his brother. Uh Rick Story this week. He's a banker. Uh, yeah. Yes. Uh he's he's mom and dad's favorite. Always has been. That's why he's called Rich the Bedtime Story and not <laughs> Rick the Horror Story. Uh, it just doesn't get any better than that, than the than the combo that, that Donald Cerrone used to knock out Rick Story in this. And Rick Story comes into this fight as a top 10 welterweight. Maybe you're just clinging on to that by the skin of his teeth, according to the UFC's official rankings. But, yeah, it seems like Donald Cerrone had kind of find, found his stride at 170 pounds. Well, you want to talk about reading the room, though. I think that this was one of Donald Cerrone's reading the much broader room of the UFC and realizing these days it does not matter that much whether it would make sense for me to win some fights at welterweight and then demand a lightweight title shot. Like, obviously, logically, that uh, that does not follow. But it doesn't matter anymore. Like, the UFC does not care about that stuff anymore. They're looking around going, what are the, the matchups we can make that people will pay for right now? And Donald Cerrone versus Eddie Alvarez for the lightweight title that sounds like one of those matchups. So I couldn't, I can't really blame him for doing the math on that. And also for at this point in his career thinking, you know, instead of trying to build up a path to some title in any one division, let me just try to pick one fight at a time. And if I see a chance to jump right into a title fight, try to take that. I can't blame him for that. That, that seems like a smart strategy on Donald Cerrone's part. Yeah, I agree. And Donald Cerrone is the kind of dude where, uh, you know, that he's, we're going to watch whatever fight they put him in. 
because we we like to watch him fight, and and so does everybody else that watches the UFC. So whether he winds up in a lightweight title to fight against Eddie Alvarez, or whether he winds up uh, with a rematch against Nate Diaz, or whether they go way outside the 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 box and and he wound up with a fight against Conor McGregor, it doesn't really matter. We we would watch him fight though, fight those fights, and if you you know. If he fought the the Wonder Man at some point, that seems seems delightful. Man, I would watch the hell out of that. That would be an excellent fight. Hashtag would watch, especially since Donald Cerrone seems to only be getting getting better and you know coming into his own almost as, as a fighter in these last several fights. I don't know if you want to attribute that to people say he's been working more with Brandon Gibson at the uh, at the BMF Ranch out there outside of Albuquerque, and and it seems like. Uh, you know, he's he's uh he's kind of taking it to the next level striking wise and and the thing that occurs to me at this point in Cerrone's career about watching him fight is like that dude just has so many tools in his toolbox that like a dude like Rick Story almost simply can't compete like Rick Story had his moments in his fight but like Don Cerrone goes out there takes him down at first beats yeah. him up on the feet kicks him in the stomach uh, gets taken down and damn near like triangles him immediately. Almost gets him in Omoplata, gets back up, cracks off a, a, like a video game style f- four strike combo, and knocks him out. Like that's a dude who's at the very, very pinnacle of his game right now. And he has the, uh, a mixed martial arts game. And when it's all clicking, it's impressive. You know, and off this, uh, question from Jonathan Ganyu, you know, if we made cowboy versus cowboy, you know, when he, when he fought the Brazilian cowboy, basically just because it was a way to throw two cowboys in there at the same time, you can't tell me there's, you can't make a same strong argument for cowboy versus wonder boy. It just, it feels right. No, I, yeah, I agree with you. Two boys. Loser has to become an adult. Two 30 something year old boys. An adult out there. man. Next question comes from Josh from Virginia. He writes, after spending a few hours of a pleasant late summer Saturday evening reading Champion of the World, I went down to my local Irish pub and ambled up to a booth in time for the UFC 202 prelims. How did this question get selected? Still, it's a good question. Yeah. Just wait for it. Just wait. Okay. It's still developing. The question itself is still developing. Yeah. Still just settling into the usual trash talk with some buddies while enjoying a couple few soda pops. We all had the first of several oh damn moments when Cody sketchy neck tattoo Garbrandt disposed Takea Mizugaki on his butt or deposited Takea Mizugaki on his butt mere seconds into their featured prelim. Heretofore, the only other fighter I can recall having rolled through Mizugaki was the bantamweight goat himself, Dominic Rogelio Cruz. Knowing as we all do that the official UFC rankings are a joke, I assumed that the UFC would immediately attempt to resume the marketing of a potential Cruz versus Garbrandt title bout. Joe Rogan did not disappoint. All BS aside, however, how does this fight make sense? Garbrandt's success has been predicated uh, on power punching and Belfortian bull rushes, but that's all we've seen. Thomas Almeida was a big win for him, certainly, but he's never fought a top 10 bantamweight. Is the UFC blowing it by rushing a talented prospect into the bright lights of a title shot? You know, I don't know if you can say yet that they're rushing him into that title shot, but they do seem to want to keep that conversation going. And I can understand why, because you're thinking that that's where you're going to end up eventually, right? And it seems like even this question, the the unstated assumption in it is that Hey, eventually Cody Garbrandt's going to be ready to fight for the UFC bantamweight title, probably against Dominic Cruz, unless he gets injured and is gone for another 17 years or whatever it is. But that seems like 
eventually that's the point we'll arrive at and it's just a question of whether we should go there right away or whether we should wait and and let that marinate a little bit and right now all i really see the ufc doing is kind of acknowledging that future inevitability the way it feels and it's like it seems like you can't really keep those guys away from talking about each other you might as well use that as as best you can and uh if you decide you want to put Cody Garbrandt in a couple more of these fights that are clearly set up for him to knock the hell out of somebody uh, just so he can shit-talk Dominic Cruz from the sitting over there on the broadcast table. All right. I think we'd all watch one or two or more of those before we absolutely felt like we had to see the title fight. Yeah, and, the, you know, the bantamweight right now it's, it's, is not the, the deepest possible division out there. Uh, Dominic Cruz has already uh, beat the, the two top official contenders. Uh, and then you, you still got guys like John Lineker up and coming, you know, Aljamain Sterling uh, up and coming. John Dodson recently arrived on the scene, re-arrived on the scene, I guess you could say. Thomas Almeida, that kind of dude hanging out in the division. So, like, in terms of hot speculative matchups for Dominic Cruz, obviously I think the the answer there is Cody Garbrandt, and it's just the 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 one that we keep going back to. But I think that, like, you know, I, I don't, I don't think Cody Garbrandt is wrong to consider himself at 25 years old, one of the more marketable dudes thus far in the bantamweight division, especially now that he's put together three, uh, first round knockouts in a row. Uh, and yeah, the, I think that, uh, the email here makes the proper point that, that the level of competition hasn't been the stiffest, but like, again, just as of the point that you made about Donald Cerrone, Cody Garbrandt is clearly a dude who understands how business gets done in the UFC now. Uh, and he's so as long as he can keep go out there, going out there and knock people out, he's probably going to also continue to try to talk his way into a title fight. Uh, which, if recent circumstances are anything to judge by, he will probably talk himself into sooner rather than later. And I do think that it's like an interesting matchup of styles. I mean, I think that it's easy to assume that Dominic Cruz will run circles around Cody Garbrandt the same way he runs circles about every around everyone else at 135 pounds. But you watch him knock out Mizugaki in 48 seconds, and it kind of feels like Garbrandt only needs to hit you clean one time. And even though that's like kind of Dominic Cruz's game, like he does get hit in the face every now and then. And when you got the power like Cody Garbrandt does, that that I think makes him a dangerous matchup. Well, you know, and I think that's how you can make the case that this is the only matchup you can really strongly sell right now against Dominic Cruz. Because, you know, or you could see a, a rematch with TJ Dillashaw at some point, and I'm sure it'll be a good fight and everything. But the way Dominic Cruz has, has got that style so dialed in that it seems like anybody who's going to try to out-cruise him uh, or just beat him with, with quickness and, and punch combinations and, and mixing together everything is in for a long night because that's just going to be a, a tough job. But somebody who goes in there and says, you know what? I'm, I'm fast enough that I can catch him and I'm powerful enough that when I do catch him, I only need to catch him once. Uh, that is a, an interesting question for Dominic Cruz that we haven't seen him face too much. All right, we'll do one more question and then then we'll move on. Uh, last question this week comes to us from Isaac Spooner. He writes, if I've asked before and I'll ask again, I've asked before and I'll ask again because it bears repeating. Y'all going to talk about Lorenz Larkin? Because you should. Okay, let's talk about Lorenz yeah, Larkin. Yeah, Lorenz Larkin pretty much beat the brakes off Neil Magny this past weekend. And uh, since a rough 2013, 2014, where Lorenz Larkin went one and four, he is now four and one. 
So quite the turnaround for him. Uh, continues to kind of make hay at welterweight. His only loss there is that split decision to Albert Tumanov back at UFC 195. And performances like this against Neil Magny are the kind of thing that make you think that Larkin is another dude, kind of like Donald Cerrone, although a little bit younger, uh, who's just now kind of harnessing all of his faculties in this sport because he, he looked impressive and you got to credit Neil Magny for his toughness, I guess, for hanging in for four minutes. But like after an, a really early strike, it just kind of looked like he, he never got it back together. Yeah, Lorenz Larkin does seem like one of those guys where if he gets some momentum built up and he gets a head of steam going on you, he'll run right over you. How about this one being on the the fight pass prelims? Because this I even forgot that this fight was on this card. And when I sat down on fight night and realized, oh, wait a minute, Lorenz Larkin versus Neil Magny? Like, that's a hell of a fight thrown on there on the fight pass. Again, that same strategy we've seen recently where they want to put some names on fight pass, uh, something people know and that might convince them to sign up, and you're... You go back to that question of how to balance that because I understand you can't just throw leftovers and scrubs on Fight Pass and expect people to sign up for it. And at the same time, I would not be super thrilled about it if I were Lorenz Larkin and Neil Magny uh, to hear that the company's strategy involves somewhat burying me on the least viewed aspect of the entire fight night. Yeah, and you know it's a, it's a it's a strategy that I guess has been lauded a little bit for fight pass. People seem to be complimentary of this strategy of, of having a, a fight pass main event. And I understand the, uh, the thinking behind that, but like actually this, this having Lorenz Larkin versus Neil Magny as the fight pass main event, quote unquote, and having fights like, uh, Tim means versus Saba Homasi and, and Mike Perry versus, uh, Hungu Lim probably nailed that one, uh, on the actual, it's actually not bad on the on the main card uh this this one kind of made me wonder like do you think this strategy is working like do you think that there are tons of people out there who because of this annoyance kind of are going to be like well I'm, i'll guess i'll sign up for the fightpass.com because i can't miss lorenz larkin versus neil magny uh, especially when i would assume everyone who would be thinking about signing up for fight pass at this stage in the game would know hopefully this isn't a spoiler that like you can still find almost any UFC fight that you want to find for free on the internet, like later on. I wonder if this strategy is, is effective. Well, the thing I wondered is, are we, is it a strategy that you have to see in the aggregate, really? Because if you're talking about Lorenz Larkin versus Neil Magny as the thing that's going to get people to sign up for Fight Pass, you know, at that point, you would have to say you're going after the shit-eating wild man for MMA vote, uh, which you probably already have if you're Fight Pass. Either you have it or, you know, you're not going to get it. Or you've had it and you've lost it and you're trying to get it back. I think that stuff like this, when you consistently are putting a pretty good known pairing on the, the Fight Pass portion of a bigger card, it seems like you're just trying to send the message going forward that, like, hey, we're going to... We're going to keep doing this. We're going to make sure there's always some some good shit on Fight Pass. Uh, so you might as well sign up because this is just how it's going to be going forward. It's not like any one of them is the thing that forces you to sign up. It's just like trying to establish that expectation so that eventually you'll you'll give in and you'll say, all right, damn it, you can have my 10 bucks a month uh, because I don't want to go on missing some of this stuff. Well, that's going to do it for this week's uh, listener mail. 
If you have questions or comments or concerns to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all those days when we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. There's no shortage of stuff happening. I, I cannot remember the last time stuff did not happen. Do you ever get this where you tell someone what you do for a living and they question whether or not there's enough news produced by MMA to like to uh, afford a, fu- a full-time, more or less full-time writing job? Because it happens to me quite a bit. People be like, oh, there's enough going on there for people to write about? And I'm always like, man, you have no idea. There is stupid shit happening every single day. I just say I'm a garbage man just to avoid that conversation altogether. Then you just got to talk about union dues and and who you're going to vote for as union president in the next election. I found that once you tell people you're a garbage man and you just get a faraway look in your eye uh, and tell them the things you've seen they don't want to know about, that shuts down the conversation. It sounds like a good strategy. It sounds like a winning strategy for making friends and impressing people. I I come up with a few more of these strategies. I may never have to talk to anybody ever again. (laughs) Ah, Where was I? It's a good newsletter. You'll like it. It's funny. It's entertaining. It's short. Uh, and if you don't like it, impossible to unsubscribe. It's actually really easy to unsubscribe. So huh. easy. People keep writing us to be like, I accidentally unsubscribed. I would like to resubscribe, please. I was laying in bed thinking about unsubscribing and I realized, oh shit, that did it. People That's oftentimes, it people oftentimes write to say they haven't been getting the newsletter and normally it's because, uh, their email is putting it into their, like some other folder. Uh, but oftentimes they have also unsubscribed at some point. That's how easy it is to unsubscribe. People do it and then they just forget. Wow. I guess that's uh, something we ought to take a look at. Maybe make it a little bit more difficult to unsubscribe. Yeah. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, I had an interesting UFC 202 watching experience because this past weekend was my fifth wedding anniversary. Hey! hey opa. So I was on the road with my wife. We were in San Francisco on vacation. How so, nice. So I didn't. It was How nice. nice for you, too. It was super fun. Uh, expensive, though. Woo! They got them New York prices over there in San Francisco. Oh, God. Like a Old throwback, to, like a throwback to those days. How expensive the big city is. So I didn't get to watch. A caramel I, was five cents. <laughs> Can you believe it? I had to catch up with UFC 202 after the fact. Uh, but since I was on the road for my fifth wedding anniversary, it was not that difficult for me to avoid spoilers. So I got to watch it without knowing what happened. And it was a heck of a show, by the way. Uh, but when I watched Conor McGregor versus Nate Diaz, aside from thinking that it was a an entertaining encounter of fisticuffs, uh, the like of which may not be seen, you know, for a month or two. Uh, I thought that it was a pretty clear cut 48, 47 Conor McGregor and was surprised Motherfuckers. To, to see oh. one judge score at a draw. And then at when I, then when I started going back to sift back through the social media response was again reminded that I should not be surprised that 
there is always controversy over a decision. Uh, any any like even remotely close UFC decision is going to have people on your timeline asking you if you thought it was fixed. Well, I think you see that more whenever it's a fighter who people are very passionate about. And this because fight their, in their particular blinds them. matched up the two fighters in the entire UFC with the fan bases that are less interested in ha- in letting you talk sense at them. That's right. Perhaps the two those two most pronounced fan bases in the entire company. You may you may be actually right about that. Uh as far as the scoring of it, I think what it really comes down to is how you score round 2. That's the toughest one to score, I think, because uh Conor McGregor wins the first three and a half minutes, uh, but, you know, isn't, you know, he wins it pretty solidly, I think, and then... Knocks him down. Knocks him down, and then Nate Diaz comes on strong in the last minute and a half, and you know how that affects people's perception sometimes. They they remember most what they saw last in the round, and I think that that's the part that, where the argument is, because how you score round two sways that entire fight. Yeah, but I mean, you gotta really be looking for a, a reason to score that fight, score that round for Nate Diaz. Like, you gotta be, you you got to have picked Nate Diaz pre-fight, or you gotta be a denizen of the two hundred nine. Because, like, man, you get knocked down in a round and come back in the last minute and thirty seconds and and land your you know your volume strikes like. That ain't getting it done. You're not winning that round. No, and you know when I first watched it live, uh, I thought. Close fight. I could see it going either way. I couldn't really argue either way it went. Uh, Conor McGregor got the decision. I thought, all right, sure. Uh, and then I watched the next day. My wife, uh, didn't see it live, wanted to watch it. Um, and when I watched it the second time through, it seemed way more clear for, I mean, again, I already knew the outcome by that point, but I was watching it kind of trying to, to ask myself to, to take a closer look and see exactly how you'd score it. And that, that time it seemed way clearer to me that Conor McGregor won the decision. Yeah, it's interesting to think like how the hysteria of the moment and how uh, the rise of social media has changed our viewing habits. Like I almost prefer – like it is mostly uh, impossible and like not really very handy to do it this way. But I almost prefer to watch the fight kind of outside of that bubble. To I just feel like you get a, a clearer picture of it. Like on a solitary uh, mountaintop? Just all alone, you yeah. watching the fight. Yes. Big screen TV up uh-huh. there. Yep. Clover blowing in the breeze. Yeah. Maybe sitting astride a, a mountain goat. I don't know. I don't know what you're doing up there. Whatever you have to do, really. This was a huge win for Conor McGregor, obviously. But I like. I would argue to you, like the most impressive and important win of his UFC career just because how things had gone recently. And, you know, I think that we know this now about MMA, that when a fighter bursts on the scene and is very dominant and wins a bunch of fights in more or less easy fashion, that uh, that has a way of not necessarily disguising the truth, but, like, it takes a while to get a complete picture of a mixed martial arts fighter. You know, you have people like Ronda Rousey who breezes through six fights in the UFC, destroys everyone in two minutes, and you think she's unbeatable. Then it turns out, oh, wait a second, she can't take Holly Holm down and, like, thrusts herself pell-mell into the teeth of Holly Holm's uh, offense, and she ends up looking kind of like an amateur and getting knocked out. Uh, Kind of the same thing with Brock Lesnar. He loses his UFC debut but wins four in a row after that, and... You know, we don't realize until that Shane Carwin fight exactly how 
much he dislikes getting punched in the face. Uh, and after we figure that out, things, things go south for him very quickly. Uh, he only lost a diverticulitis. You sure, know that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's no, the we, only thing that ever beat him. We all know that. I, there was an asterisk. No I, opponent ever beat him. Yeah. Yet. No, I know. I know. Except for Cain Velasquez and Alistair Overeem, uh, there at the end. Uh, and I think that's important for Conor McGregor because the two people that I just talked about were the UFC's two biggest pay-per-view draws immediately preceding the arrival of Conor McGregor. And to see Conor McGregor breeze through all these fights while talking enormous amounts of trash about how he was the greatest thing in the world and a god among men, and then to see him lose to Nate Diaz the way he did in their first fight, if I were, were a guy who had stock in, in McGregor Industries or stock in the UFC, I would have been nervous. I would have been like, God, I hope that this guy is everything he's cracked up to be because, you know, you, the UFC can make you a star, but your longevity and your staying power defend, depend largely on, on whether or not you got the complete game to back up all that talk. And I think this was the first fight, maybe, where we got to see a lot of different things that Conor McGregor is capable of doing. And it ended like, you know, like, and I think the answers that he provided were largely very positive. Yeah. No, I think this one was absolutely necessary. I think because especially, as you mentioned, kind of the narrative that had taken shape around him was that the UFC had identified him fairly early on as a really marketable draw, somebody you want to get behind and somebody who you want to see be successful and made a bunch of matchmaking decisions for him that seemed to have that in mind. And that honestly, can't help but provoke some like resentment, uh, both from other fighters and from like certain fans. Just be like, hey, why is this guy being given uh, an easier path? Why do you clearly seem to be in in this guy's camp uh, and not you know just throwing him in there the way you do with everybody else and and waiting to see where the chips fall? And so you know people were waiting for to see some kind of crack in the veneer. And he goes out there against Nate Diaz in that first fight and kind of gets broken a little bit. Uh, and the narrative immediately shifted where everybody was saying, look, see, this guy has never had to go through anything hard in there. He's never really been pushed, uh, never found himself uh, with a bad situation that he had to come back from. And as soon as he, he found himself in that bad situation, he couldn't do it. And he, he tapped out immediately, didn't even defend that choke, uh, just wanted out of there. Ha ha, look at him. Uh, and so I think it really showed you a lot about his character, not only that he insisted on getting this fight again right away and at welterweight again, which we all said beforehand was a bad idea, but he goes in there and it looks like the same thing is about to happen to him. It took a little longer to happen. He paced himself better this time, but you see him in that third round and it looks like he really doesn't want to be there anymore. And you start to think, uh-oh, this is all the same thing all over again. Nate Diaz has, is going to wear him down, going to totally Diaz his shit. And Conor McGregor is going to quit. And then he, he pulled himself right back in there. He didn't break. He, he got off the stool for round four and went out there and won the damn round and kept coming. And I think that that you could see him growing as a fighter and as a person in that fight. And I think that it really, especially when you step back then and see the big picture that he wanted this fight, he wanted to prove this. Uh, and then he went out there and he did it even after facing that adversity. I mean, his, his star, and his stock goes way up more because he went through that hard time in the middle of the fight than if he had just gone in there and steamrolled Nate Diaz. Yeah. And he had a lot of like physical and stylistic questions to answer in this fight, as you alluded to. And like one of those was, could he be more than just a left-handed knockout artist? Because he had been kind of, you know, killing everybody at featherweight, knocked Jose Aldo out in 13 seconds. And I think that he ran the risk of falling into an Anthony Johnson-style situation where – 
we were going to see like, okay, well, if he not, if he can't knock somebody out and he has to fight a guy who is like stylistically trickier than you think he is in Nate Diaz, how is he going to respond to that? I think he, that Conor McGregor actually responded very well. He came out in this fight for the first round and a half and had like a pretty different game plan than you had seen from him in the first fight or really in his previous UFC career and like stuck to it kind of admirably. Uh, it seemed like he had made the necessary adjustments. Uh, and then, like you said, even when he did get tired and when that broke down a little bit and when Nate Diaz started to have his moments, which I think we all knew was going to happen. I think we knew Nate Diaz would be there not giving a fuck for the full 25 minutes uh, to see how McGregor responded. And I thought he responded pretty well. Uh, now, I don't think he comes away from this fight looking like a dude who is going to beat everyone on the UFC's roster. I think especially if he were how to... about the WWE roster? Those chumps, those, those clowns? Yeah. I mean, we'll see what happens at this year's WrestleMania. Okay. I don't know. Uh, especially if he stuck around at 170 pounds, I think he would have trouble. But, like, he seems like this was a real battle-tested star-forging moment for him, at least in my opinion. And I think if he and the UFC continue to steer his career kind of in the right direction, like, like he'll, he's going to be here for a while. He seems like a talented enough guy to, 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 like, back up a lot of what he has said. Now, the inevitable question, though, is where do you go from here? Because you're right. You made your point at welterweight. I think that you know everybody wants to talk about trilogy after a fight like that. And Danny Downs and I discussed it uh, in our trading shots column this week. I wouldn't mind seeing the trilogy at some point, yeah. but I don't want to see it. I I can't really stomach the thought of just three straight fights of this. Right. There's other it business It seems like to the wrong to. financial move for the UFC, if for no other reason, like, man, Nate Diaz could totally beat Conor McGregor in the rematch. Like, that is a very, a very good possibility. Right. Uh, I think you gotta, like, I think George St. Pierre is the only exception to the you need to get this guy out of 170 pounds rule. Like, if you can make that fight for the end of the year, you stand to make so much goddamn money. It doesn't really matter if Conor McGregor loses or wins. Like, obviously, if he were to beat George St. Pierre, well. I want it for the record that I'm just sitting here shaking my head. Go ahead and take the ATM home and, and just start printing out your own money. But, like, I don't think he can stick around at welterweight. Like, I would think the best move is Eddie Alvarez at lightweight. I think, especially if you allow Conor McGregor to do kind of a champion versus champion fight and let him keep that featherweight belt until after that fight. Uh, I think you can sell that. I think that it's a stylistically really interesting and exciting matchup. Uh, and it's what you were going to do with the guy in the first place anyway. So you might as well. I was right there with you until you talk about letting him keep the featherweight belt. Because first of all, I mean, uh, only for marketing purposes. You got, I mean, if he's not going to go back down to 145, which I've said all along, I don't think he will unless he has to. Like he has to give it up eventually. He does have to get it up eventually, which is why I think you might as well go ahead and give it up now. I, I mean, I realize the difficulty is going to be in convincing him to go along with that plan because it seems like you have a tenuous relationship with Conor McGregor right now. If you're the UFC, you don't want to make any huge bold moves and scare him off. Uh, or anger him and get into a, another war with him over some petty bullshit. But at the same time, man, you're holding up that division. And it's not like he went out there and won in 13 seconds this time and could turn right around and do a fight with Eddie Alvarez whenever. You know, you saw him limping off uh, after the not-quite-press conference addressing the media after the fight. It's going to take a little while before he's ready to fight again. So you're going to have to wait through that. Then you're going to have to wait through you know, the, the fight itself, whatever the outcome of the fight is, and then determine what, like, after that, ask him again whether he ever wants to go down to featherweight. The only reasonable thing, I think, is if you're going to make – if he's not going to go back to featherweight right now for his next fight, then 
give up that belt. Give up that belt and maybe, you know, if you feel like you want to be a featherweight again someday in the in the distant future, which I don't see happening, then go back and fight for it again. But you can't you can't hold up that division forever. No, I hear what you're saying, and I agree with you. I, I, I mean, I was just saying from a marketing standpoint, I think you you probably loop in more casual fans if it's a champion versus champion thing. But it's possible that at this point, Conor McGregor doesn't uh, doesn't need that. Like, like he could go out there and maybe sell a fight with Eddie Alvarez anyway. So like if if or he could do a John Jones move and just show up with a replica belt and and remind everybody he's the champion anyway. I have a feeling he will remind us that he is the legitimate champion. Uh, more often than than we would like to think they do end up taking away from do you want to do are you fucking kidding me and then we will uh move on to round two talk a little bit about nate diaz sure ben what's your are you fucking kidding me for this week well chad you mentioned the bout on the undercard here between mike perry and hung you lim now mike perry making his ufc debut and Gave us a reason to hate him right away during the weigh-in. Clear him. I'm getting my throat ready here. Boo. <laughs> I'm just going to boo. Boo this Go. man. Boo. He, he does the old, I'm going to shake your hand, no I'm not thing to Hung Yu Lim, uh, which just right away, people are not on your side when you do that. Also, as it was pointed out, I think Danny Downs is the one pointed out on, uh, on Twitter, when you, when he walks out to the cage and you realize, wait a minute, does he have God's gift tattooed across his stomach? Yep, he does. Now, see, yeah, that's on some Rick Rude shit, so I could get into that, but <laughs> that's strike, I hear you with the rest of it. That's strike two. Then, uh, afterwards, we see and hear the audio from his corner right before the fight. They're standing there looking across at Hyung Yu Lim, and it sounds like his corner man is saying racist stuff. Yep. Just gross. Yeah. Um, so strike three, I realize that one isn't technically on Mike Perry. That's on his cornermen, but I got to assume you, you, you pick those cornermen. You choose who you associate with. And since you already had the other stuff working against you, I got to just say, are you fucking kidding me? Mike Perry is your gimmick going to be to be the most hated man in the UFC immediately upon entrance because that shit might be working. It might be working. You fucking kidding me? You fucking kidding me? Well, Ben, I usually don't uh, like to give Skip Bayless any of our time because I think we all we all know what the man's gimmick is at this point, and he makes a lot of money off getting people to to talk about him and and uh, be the antagonist. But this one, I did want to mention in passing, just for one reason. Skip Bayless tweeted, I guess this was yesterday, uh, as a longtime hardcore boxing fan, starting with the Ali era, I've been leery of the UFC. But after my first live event last night, I'm now all in. To which I would huh. say, are you fucking kidding me, Skip Bayless? You're going to go work for Fox Sports, and then suddenly you're going to pull a 180-degree about face on your position on the UFC. Don't you think that we see what you're doing here? Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, we just got done talking about Conor McGregor and his future. Now we must turn our attention to the flip side of that coin, the loser of the fight, Nathan Donald Diaz. 
who went out there and really Diaz did up just like you thought he would. Uh, again, the same, he is who we thought he was, you might say. He gets hit in the face, he bleeds a lot, and it still just is not the least bit discouraging to him. He's still going to keep coming at you with that same style until you absolutely make him stop one way or another. And yet this time he loses, and loses with a pretty substantial payday from the sound of it, and tells us that he is not going to do shit until they give him another fight with Conor McGregor. You buy that? Uh, yes and no. I believe that the moment that that came out of Nate Diaz's mouth, he probably totally believed that. He's probably totally dead set on that. He's going to have a little bit of money in his pocket now, so I don't have a hard time believing it will be a thing that he sticks to for a while. But, like, I don't know, man. We've kind of seen how these kind of proclamations go from Diaz brothers and and other people. Like, the dudes have had kind of an uncanny ability to talk themselves into big fights thus far in their careers. But, like, I bet Nate Diaz goes home for, for a several months, uh, sits around in Stockton. Like, as soon as he gets bored of throwing knives and, uh, so never and riding his bike down so, to the park for, for, for big rumbles, uh, you're never going to get tired of that. They're going to make him, uh, they're going to make him an offer that he, he thinks is good enough. So they'll give him, he'll get a high profile opponent, even if it's not Conor McGregor. So, like, yeah, I think Nate Diaz probably fights somebody else at some point. But you go from making $2 million to fight Conor McGregor, feeling like you were screwed on the decision, which, of course, like, Diaz is going to feel that way no matter what happens. Yeah, this is an interesting fight because, like, obviously this kind of fight attracts a lot of mainstream uh, attention. So I had guys on my Facebook feed who are not MMA fans but, like, watch this fight and know who Conor McGregor is, responding to Nate Diaz's post-fight interviews of being like, I can't believe this guy would think he he won this fight. Like, well, is he is he crazy? What's this guy's deal? And it's just like, man, you have never seen a Diaz fight before, have you? Well, but after something like that, you're not going to turn around and say, all right, Nate, now we'll give you 45 and 45 to fight Edson Barboza at the UFC on Fox 89 or whatever we're at now there. Like, that's not going to happen. Like, he's he's going to tell you to go fuck yourselves. He just made $2 million. Uh, if you need him, he'll be throwing knives into the drywall. Uh, like, I, I I believe that you're right when, he, when you say that, you know, he believed it when he said it. And he might, given some time to think about it, uh, change his mind. But also, when you mention how the Diaz brothers have had this uncanny ability to talk themselves into big fights... I think the lessons he's learned looking at his brother who keeps demanding opportunities that he has in no way earned and yet profiting off them and getting those those opportunities, even when it seems insane, is that you can make those demands if you're a Diaz and just wait long enough and eventually they'll come around to you. No, yeah, I, yeah, I don't find that hard to believe. And like, I think it largely maybe depends on what Conor McGregor does. Like, if Conor McGregor comes around to a trilogy within, you know, eight months or so, maybe Nate Diaz's next fight is Conor McGregor. But like, and maybe it also comes down to a question of whether or not you believe Nate Diaz can command a big enough price on his own to get him back in the cage as, you know, a main event attraction or something approaching a main event attraction, especially now that he's, he's capable of, now that he's become sort of a money weight, like his brother, like you can match him up against guys at lightweight or welterweight. Like I don't have a hard time believing that a rematch with Donald Cerrone, you, and you throw, uh, Nate Diaz $500,000 and it's the main event of, of UFC on Fox 
somewhere down the line. I don't have a hard time believing that they could make that happen, but it kind of depends on how much money that's worth to the UFC, how much they're willing to pay and, and whether or not you think that like the rub from Conor McGregor makes Nate Diaz finally makes Nate Diaz a needle mover. Yeah. I guess it depends what you're going to try to get him to do and how much you're willing to pay him to do it because you know, Hey, yeah. Which I think you just described work. Offer him half a mil for a UFC on Fox fight, I can I can both understand how he would agree to that and why the UFC wouldn't do it. Uh, I I think it's going to be tough to convince him to do anything but become a exclusive money weight at this point and for real money. You're just not going to convince him to go back. You know, he fought Michael Johnson uh, in just kind of a role player scenario on a UFC on Fox right before this McGregor thing kind of changed his whole bum life. As a, as McGregor might say, you're not going to convince him to go back to that, especially if he doesn't need to. If he has the money and he doesn't act, act, absolutely have to get in there and fight for you anytime soon, he can afford to wait. Yeah, I think that the only thing that we can say with any certainty is that he will continue to Diaz his ass off, which, as you said, I mean, a when little you're bit, vaping. Yes. As, as you're talking to reporters afterwards, that that is peak Diaz right there. Right. Not just vaping, but weed vaping. Yeah. Right. Well, not quite weed, but like some kind of. See, this it's is it's basically weed, is my understanding. <laughs> Here, co-main event podcast listener out there in the CME universe who owns one of these weed pens or whatever they are. How did uh, smoking pot get so fucking complicated? Don't ask me. It man. left me behind, man. I just can't. And now, I, who's the old man now? I huh? can't keep up. Like people just like don't even smoke pot anymore. They're just grinding it up into. Uh, something that can seep through their pores and, and I, how, how am I supposed to be able to keep track of all this shit now the great strength I'm just going to keep going if that's okay okay the great strength and also the great weakness of the Diaz brothers though is there is their ability to Diaz right like that's the whole reason that Nate Diaz finds himself in this position to begin with but also I think you could argue the whole reason that he doesn't come out on top of this fight like Conor McGregor and, and, and the, the SBG guys in Ireland kind of knew what Nate Diaz was going to do in this fight. He's going to be heavy on that front leg. He's going to do some pressure boxing and they cooked up a game plan to, to win the first couple rounds of this fight doing that. Uh, and then, you know, Nate Diaz shows up looking like he, looking like he's basically always looked being the guy that he's always been, which is who is a guy that we love, by the way, but also like not the guy who wins this fight. And I think that. When it comes to deciding what Nate Diaz's next move is, like the only thing that we can say for sure is that it will come from Planet Diaz. Yeah, you know, did his approach in this fight surprise you at all? No, not not at all. I was surprised. That's what we talked about last week. What I talked about last week. I was surprised at how often he took it back to the clinch. And I, I guess maybe thinking, being the bigger man, you can wear him down in the clinch. Look for your takedowns yeah. there. Uh, but especially when you, he had several good opportunities where it looked like he was going to finish a takedown and couldn't do it. You know, really only got that good takedown in the last 10 seconds of the fight, which is just kind of heartbreaking for him. But it it was surprising to me that even though that strategy was not really paying off the way he wanted it to, he tried to do more wrestling in this fight than I think we've ever seen Nate Diaz do. Yeah, and I think Conor McGregor's takedown defense was surprising in a good kind of way. 
uh, for the most part. But yeah, no, I think like uh, the combination of Diaz trying to wear McGregor down and also the fact that when he tried to move forward with his strikes, when he tried to move forward and throw strikes, McGregor kind of took a page out of Carlos Connett's book and would just get out of there and then reset, uh, which is the smart thing to do in this fight. And if they're not going to cut off the cage and prevent you from doing that, like that's probably absolutely what you should do if you want to beat a guy who fights like Nick and Nate Diaz. Uh, so like, I think because that wasn't necessarily working and because that he wanted to tire him out and because maybe he also wanted him to take, to take him down, like maybe clinch work was the thing that made the most sense. Like I thought that it was a, it was a decent strategy and would have been a, a really good strategy had he been able to take Conor McGregor down. Yeah. It is surprising to me the, you know, and obviously a lot of MMA fans are going to seize on that Conor McGregor disengaging, uh, from some of those exchanges and say, look, look at that. He's running away. Look at this guy. How's he going to win a fight running away? But you're right. If, if the dude's answer to you turning your back, walking away and resetting is going to be just to follow you right around, uh, and let you keep dictating the, the terms of where the fight takes place, he's not going to cut off the cage and he's not going to try to do anything about that. Then why wouldn't you do it? And I think people, you know, Carlos Condit really showed a, a good style to, beat the Diaz brothers, but also showed how it could be a very unpopular style and that it takes a lot of discipline to stick to something like that. And that's kind of been the one of the, the Diaz brothers' great strength is that you might think you come in there with your game plan and your game plan involves not doing what they want you to do and not getting sucked into to their whole approach and fighting it on their terms, and yet they, they make you do it anyway. Yeah. I'm always surprised at the number of prejudices that, that – we carry around as fight fans just in terms of like uh being against certain styles saying a guy runs away in a fight like uh it is almost never true that a professional fighter in a professional prize fight can be legitimately accused of running away like you uh, uh you know the Caleb Starnes Nate Quarry fight maybe the only fight i can recall where i thought that that was like an accurate uh descriptor or like an accurate insult to what the guy did. Like Conor McGregor certainly didn't run away from anybody in this fight. He engaged more often than not. And I would say the same thing about Carlos Condit against Nick Diaz. Although now I know that Planet Diaz is going to be enraged at me, but like Carlos Condit won that fight by doing that and kind of like tricked Nick Diaz into following him every time he did it. So like, I don't know, man, it's just like we, and obviously the, the, the reason that some fans dislike that, I think it's obvious because of just the optics of how it looks. But to me, it's like being mad at a guy for, for scooting out of trouble and resetting and starting again somewhere else in the cage is like comparable to being mad at somebody for trying to defend the takedown. You know what I mean? Like nobody, nobody is like, well, this, this guy just won't even let George St. Pierre take him down and wrestle with him like a gentleman. (laughs) Why does he insist on standing on his feet like a barbarian? It's just because of the the prejudices that we bring to fighting. Like we like one thing and don't like the other. Wait, and more commonly, the way those prejudices work is: look at this George St. Pierre guy continually taking everybody down because he's scared to stand on the feet right, and fight exactly. like a man. Right? Yeah, exactly. Like the one thing is not more valuable than the other, as far as I'm concerned. All right. Well, that's going to do it for round number two. Uh, speaking of Carlos Condit, right? We're going to talk about him in round number three. That's right. Carlos Conduit coming right up. That starts right now.
we already have an explicit rating on iTunes. So if you want me to clear out of here, you can just look at Damian Maya and Carlos Connett's Wikipedia page and maybe stare longingly into a mirror. I could just let you handle this round by yourself if you want. You know, if I'd known that there was an option to get you to clear out of here, <laughs> I would have exercised it much sooner. That's true, but then you would just be here by yourself like a monkey trying to get, get this audio equipment to work. Damn it. Eventually, we'd just end up getting frustrated and sweeping it all off onto the floor with your paws. <laughs> there might be some technical difficulties. I'm not going to argue with you there. If you but come were, on. Are you going to sit here and tell me that you're not excited about Demi and Maya Carlos Conduit? No. You might be not I'm quite. I'm not going to tell you that. I'm going to tell you I'm super excited. There you go. I'm as excited as it gets. I'm just not Ben Folk's level excited about Demi and Maya fights. I just feel like this one is going to be an important addition to Demi and Maya's Jiu-Jitsu for MMA VHS tape, uh, which, you know, once we get this fight out of the way, could be in, in stores in time for Christmas. If you it's were a stocking stuffer, man. If you were 32-year-old Carlos Joseph Condit, would you feel a little bit like you caught a raw deal here? Like, because you, you are coming off this split decision loss to Robbie Lawler, who at the time was the champion at UFC 195. There was a lot of talk that maybe you would get that rematch, that championship rematch. Obviously, that didn't happen. Uh, you fast forward some eight months, and uh, now now you got Damian Maya here on Fox in a fight that uh, that is not going to be an easy one for you if you're Carlos Condit. I still think, though, that if you're Carlos Condit and you... He's a smart guy. He should be able to appreciate the big picture here, right? Which is that... The UFC is not quite sure what to do with either guy right now. They both seem like they're right there, uh, ready to be thrown into a welterweight title fight. They just need that little something extra to make their case rock solid. You put them in there together, the winner can come out of that and absolutely demand a title shot. The winner can pull a Diaz and just say, call me when you're ready to talk about the fight I want, otherwise leave me the hell alone, and they will have our support. I think Carlos Condit can appreciate that, especially since you know, after that fight with Robbie Lawler, he was talking about, you know, maybe retiring. If, if he didn't see a big enough fight, if he didn't see a way forward, then maybe that was going to be it for him. And this seems like one where they, they give you this fight to say, Hey, go out there and win one. And you're right back in the same position. Yeah. And, uh, if nothing else, you know, the, the, it seems like a high stakes situation for both guys. And Damian Maya is 38. Carlos Condit is in his early 30s. Uh, the winner here sticks around right in this top three or four guys, uh, all chasing Tyron Woodley right now. The loser drops down a little bit into the into the somewhat less heralded but arguably equally dangerous waters where guys like Kelvin Gastelum and Johnny Hendricks and Rick Story now and Gunnar Nelson are all still hanging around. Uh, so, yeah, this is one where if you win – the spoils could be particularly great. And if you lose, like neither of these dudes has a ton of time to be, to be, you know, to battle their way back up to the top and in, in a, what is a pretty uh, talented and competitive, like B league kind of. Right. Well, in that sense, I think that this is actually a pretty good deal for Carlos Condon, because if you look at his record recently, I mean, for one thing, he got that title shot with Robbie Lawler off of a one-fight winning streak. Remember, he got injured against Tyron Woodley, lost that fight. He beat Tiago Alves and then got a title shot. And it was kind of like, whoa, that seems like that was one of the fights that we identified at the time as like, obviously, this is just uh, 
pay-per-view buy-based matchmaking. That it did not seem like Carlos Condit had made a rock-solid case for a title shot at the same time. But hey, we're not going to not watch Condit versus Lawler for the for the title, and it ended up being an awesome fight. Then you go back before that, you know, he had that that win over Martin Campman before the loss to Woodley, uh, and then he had two straight losses, the the GSP and Johnny Hendricks, uh, and so it had started to seem like maybe his best hopes for getting in a welterweight, getting a welterweight title around his waist had already passed him by. And then to get thrown in another one of these fights where it looks like all you got to do is win one and you're right back in it. That's a, that's not a bad deal for him. Yeah. Uh, does it surprise you that this fight opened according to the internet that I'm looking at right now, that the odds on this fight opened with Carlos Condit as more than a two to one underdog and Damian Maya as almost a three to one favorite, and that right now across the board it is a straight up pick'em. I noticed that it was a straight up pick'em, and honestly that surprised me because I would have thought Carlos Condit would be a little bit more of a favorite, just because I think that against a guy like Damian Maya who has really, you know, embraced his the the essence of his game at this point is no longer trying to kid anyone, including himself. Uh, you go against a guy like that. As Carlos Gondit, and I think the key to beating him is going to be game plan and the discipline to stick to that game plan, uh, which, as we mentioned before, talking about Carlos Gondit's fight with Nick Diaz, I think we know Carlos Gondit has that. Uh, and I, I think that he has the, the right kind of style and the right kind of mindset to avoid getting sucked into Damian Maya's game. Yeah, it surprises me a lot. Uh, you know, even though Damian Maya's won five fights in a row, and, and like you said, is has looked really, really good since he's kind of gone back to his roots and decided to be mostly a takedowns and then jujitsu oriented fighter. Uh, but Carlos Condit is so well rounded and, and like, you know, not only the physical, uh, attributes that he possesses that I think it could cause problems for Damian Maya, but also sort of like just his all around MMA game as a super, uh, talented striker and also a guy who like certainly not in Damian Maya's league in like straight up sport jujitsu, but a guy who's, who's always been a pretty talented grappler, uh, in an M MMA sense. Like it looks, at least according to the thing that I'm looking at right now says Damian Maya opened at minus 286, which I think is really surprising. And, and if that's the case, clearly, uh, all that Carlos Condit money started coming in hot and heavy to get this thing down to, uh, to a straight up pick em. Uh, I don't know though, man, like, uh, uh, are you going to stick with your guy? You think Damian Maya has what it takes here? I feel like, you know, this, like I said, this is a difficult matchup for Carlos Condit, but I feel like if Condit shows up with his A game, like I, this seems like one he can win if for no, no other reason that he seems like far and away the better rounded guy. Yeah. And I had to turn in my picks for the, the MMA junkie staff picks, uh, project today. And it, I had to have a real reckoning with myself uh, to ask myself if I was going with my heart or my head here. Um, because you know I love me some Damian Maya. I know. You yeah. know that. All of the gags in this round are predicated around your love for Damian Maya. And yet, if I'm honest about how I see this matchup going, I think Carlos Condit wins it. Because I just don't see Damian Maya being able to do the same thing to him that he's done in recent fights where he just comes out there and says, you know what, I know that you know that I just want to get this to the ground immediately and fuck you, I'm going to do it anyway. And you're not going to be able to stop me. And that's worked on a surprising number of people and a surprising caliber of fighter. I, but I just don't see it working very well against Carlos Condon. And I, and I think 
once it doesn't work well, we've seen even in some of these fights that Demi Maia has been winning on his win streak, uh, like this fight with Matt Brown, there are moments late in a fight where if, you know, if it's still going in rounds four or five and he's been doing that style, you start to see some cracks in it a little bit and you start to see some openings for the other, for his opponents. And I think Carlos Condit is the kind of guy who can really make you pay for those and is not going to give you anything easy. Yeah, Carlos Condit's losses, recent losses are Robbie Lawler, Tyron Woodley, Johnny Hendricks, and George St. Pierre. So if you. He also hasn't been submitted in 10 damn years. So there's that too. So that's going to be a, that's going to be a tough, uh, a tough draw maybe for, for Damian Maya. All right. You want to do just saying stuff and then we'll get out of here for this week? Sure. Ben, uh, I meant to talk about this a couple weeks ago, but it's still, uh, it's still relevant. I hope it doesn't feel like I'm jumping ahead too much, but you know, John Dodson and John Lineker are going to headline fight UFC fight night 91 on October 1st. Okay. You know where that's going to be? No. Portland, Oregon. Oh boy. So first of all, I guess I'm just saying about the notion of John Dodson versus John Lineker. And second of all, since we dropped the ball on the co-main event podcast road trip to watch. We did? Yeah, we did. We did not go together (laughs) as part of a co-main event podcast road trip. Okay. You went out there for selfish reasons. One of us stuck to the plan, went out there. For selfish reasons. Did the damn thing. Uh Uh-huh. But go ahead. Maybe we made this happen. Portland co-main event podcast road trip, October 1. What are you thinking? I'm in. All right. And I mean it when I say I'm in. My track record proves it. I yeah. say it right here before the MMA gods and everybody. You can, you'll be in if you can get a lifestyle piece out of it. We'll see. Well, you know, I'm not going to not get a lifestyle piece out of it. That's <laughs> for right. damn sure. Let's, uh, what's your just saying stuff? For My this just saying stuff, Chad. Now, I know that you noticed when you looked over in the corner of Nate Diaz, a familiar face was missing. One Nicholas Diaz. Okay, I was thinking Gibbler and Melendez. He was there. Yeah. Well, Gilbert was there. Okay. Gibbler, I didn't see. <laughs> All right. Nick Diaz was not able to corner his brother because uh, supposedly having to do with an outstanding debt he still owes to the Nevada State Athletic Commission over their settlement uh, for his you know more recent uh, failed drug test for marijuana. And apparently, I think, I think the settlement was initially, it was, he owed him $100,000. And then on, on Twitter, Brett Akamoto from ESPN said that he still owed $75,000. And the Nevada Commission told him that it would allow him to corner his brother if he would pay 25 grand of it. If he would just, if he would put something on it. <laughs> you know, you don't have to pay the whole thing, but can you put something on it, Nick? Uh, and according to, to Brett Akamoto's Twitter, communication ended there. I'm just saying, you're damn right it ended there. Asking Nate to go into Nick Diaz and just saying, look, can we just get a little bit of it? Can we just have some of the money you owe us? And then we'll let you come here and hang out in your brother's corner and shout shit at the other guys. Nope. Nick Diaz ain't doing that shit. And I'm just saying, anybody who knows this guy probably should have known how that one was going to end right from the start. Just saying. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it. Communication ended there. For this week's co-main event podcast, uh, we will be back next week to tell you what happens at this Damian Maya versus Carlos Condit UFC, which also includes Anthony Pettis versus Charles Oliveira, Paige Van Zandt versus Beck Rawlings, and Jim Miller versus Joe Lousen. And then I'm sure we will look ahead to uh, the next Fight Night 93, headlined by Andre Arlovsky versus Josh Barnett. Oh. So that'll be good fun for everybody. One of those fights where when they go to show everybody's old highlights, there's a lot of non-HD shit in there. Yeah. Yes. 
<laughs> As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So whose car are we taking for? That's important. We're going to take your car because it's newer. Okay. Nicer. I assume that we could that it's got the internet radio or something. No. Nope. Play our iPads in there. I Smoke in there? <laughs> smoke what? You bring your, your vape pen? Yeah, bring my vape pen. By that time, somebody after this episode is published, we'll let us know.